This is the Star Coach Show with Meg Rentschler, episode 368. What we fail to appreciate is the avalanche of small T traumas each one of us experience very personally day after day after day and how those back up on us if we don't have a way to mitigate them and how those small, that avalanche sort of of small T trauma can end up burying us alive if we don't recognize what it is, name it for what it is, step into choice around it and allow some healing, some sunlight to disinfect and heal that space. Trauma happens. It happens to everyone. The question becomes, once we've named it, how are we going to allow it to shape us? That was Dr. Kimia Saroth, my guest on this extraordinary episode of the Star Coach Show, talking about the reality of trauma and what we as coaches and human beings can do to help mitigate that. This episode is so very important that I'm bringing it back from the archives to highlight again. So join us in this Star Coach episode on Trauma Mitigation Coaching. Hello and welcome to the Star Coach Show. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm your host, Meg Rentschler. And this week we are going to revisit one of my very favorite episodes of all time and such an important episode to hear, see, and experience again. It is my interview with Dr. Kimia Saraf. We originally did this interview in March of 2021. At the time, we were in the heat of the COVID crisis. Kimia is a physician who coaches physicians past trauma. We were talking at the time about the trauma that we all experience. You heard in the opening clip about the avalanche of small T trauma that we all experience. And one of the things that Kimia pointed out in the interview is that when we're in crisis itself, we do what we need to do to get through it. And it is often the aftermath of that, which we would be solidly in now, where people are continuing to kind of try to find their footing again and deal with this trauma. So because of that, I thought we don't want dust to fall on this interview. I want to be sure that we bring it forward. I've heard from person after person that this is one of their favorite Star Coach episodes of all time. And there's going to be times where I bring an interview back because circumstances have happened in my own life that have gotten in the way of me doing the interviews or producing the shows. In this situation, we have been up north with my mother-in-law. We thought she was transitioning out of this life. She ended up rallying, which is delightful and awesome. And, you know, it still was a chunk of time where I had to cancel interviews and move things around. And because of that, I am absolutely blessed and thrilled that I have so many shows with so many incredible guests that I can highlight one of those again that I really believe needs to be heard and experienced, like I said, and from a different lens. The lens we were looking through in 2021 might be a little different than the lens we're looking through now, and yet this information is so key. Let me tell you about Dr. Kimia Saraf. She is known as Dr. K uh, to most people. She's an internist, an educator, a physician, and a leadership coach. She, her subspecialty is the paradigm that focuses on leadership and coaching in and beyond severe burnout, toxic stress, and trauma that we're all experiencing in these times. She is the founder and CEO of Lodestar, which is a professional coaching and consulting firm utilizing a 360 degree trauma-aware container for coaching, coach training, leadership training, 
and Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Facilitation. Dr. K was an incredible guest. She shared personal stories. She is an incredible storyteller. I think that's that's part of her claim to fame. And she blends this extensive experience that she's had with the profession of coaching, with how we bring our coaching forward and hold the container for people who are experiencing trauma. And as she points out, 100% of the human population is experiencing trauma on some event in in some way, shape, or form. The other thing that we lean into pretty heavily in this interview is the difference between coaching and therapy. And I think that that is just so key as we, when we take on these heavy topics, that this is definitely heavy, needed, and And I venture to say, you're going to leave this interview maybe even a little lighter, feeling more capable and empowered to partner with people during strong emotion. So with that, I am delighted to revisit this episode with all of you and to really help each of us look through the lens of how are we partnering with people through trauma. Enjoy. Kimia, welcome to the Star Coach Show. I have been anticipating this interview and looking so forward to it. Oh, me too, Coach Meg. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. It's about such important information. Really, our pre-interview kind of blew my mind in all (laughs) that you do, all that we can be thinking about and the importance of putting this in front of as many coaches as we can to to expand our awareness about the different things that are going on and just the different work that different coaches are doing. That's one of the reasons why I do the show and why it's so exciting to bring the work you do forward. So with all that rigmarole, I would love to start with what has brought you in your journey to do the kind of work you do now? How much time do we have? Well, you know, days, <laughs> we have days. You just go ahead. I'm going to try to be succinct with it because I think it's important that we talk about the meat of it. The short story is that I am a physician. Um, I'm a, an internist by training. I also have a master's degree in public health. That interface was where I spent sort of the vast majority of um, the last 25 years of my life, which is such a long time to think about. And about, let's see, what year is it? Are we still in 2021? Uh, we oh. are. You know, it, it feels like maybe we've already done the full year, but it is still March. I think maybe we've done enough. It's enough. Anyway, in 2014, my eldest son uh, was running through the houses, 13 year olds are want to do with, you know, minimal clothing on. And I noticed that he had this really, really profound bruising all up and down one side of his body. And I stopped him and I looked at it and I knew sort of the way that a mama physician knows that uh, what I was looking at was leukemia in my child. And so I, you know, called his dad over and his dad, who also is a physician, does what dad physicians do, which is pat me on the head and tell me that I am overreacting and that boys are boys. And you know, this is boy stuff. But we took him in, got some blood work. And within a couple hours, he went from being a normal 13 year old to being in the ICU because um, leukemia is a is a medical emergency in children. And so, you know, over the next few days, we ended up with a a diagnosis of high risk, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which brought him and his sort of life of outdoors and adventure and exploration, because we're a real outdoorsy family to a screeching halt for the foreseeable future. And also brought me and my work (laughs) to a screeching halt for the foreseeable future, because I was in the very enviable position as a mom and a physician of being able to step away from all of the work I was working in. I had started a nonprofit about a decade before. Um, I was able to hand all of my nonprofit work over and stay home and take care of him. In that time, you know, we sort of moved through the first year, which is very, very intensive. And as we moved into the second year, which is still daily chemo, but less um, hard on the body, a good friend of mine banged on my door and said, uh, you're coming with me. 
at least this is how I remember the story. She tells it differently. And I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, I, yes, you are. I cleared it with your husband. We're going to get some continuing education together. She's also a physician. I said, fine. So we went, we went out to Baltimore for continuing ed. And actually what it turned out to be, and she's so clever because she knew if she had told me this up front, I probably would have blown her off. We went to a coach training program. Oh. And so I very accidentally received a three-day intensive followed by a year's worth of coursework in becoming a coach. And it was absolutely transformative for me. And here's why. In the practice of medicine, you are taught to make the diagnosis, hold the diagnosis tightly, and you carry the responsibility for the outcome of that diagnosis with you. It's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy. And you have to understand that, of course, at this time in my life, I am also carrying the diagnosis I made in my son, right? The responsibility for his daily treatment, which I'm doing most of at home and the outcome. I mean, you always carry the outcome with your kids pretty heavy, right? Right. But just the impact on him too. I just cannot imagine the strife that you went through those years. It's funny. Don't let me forget to come back to it. Because my son is, I should have given the punchline first. He's fine. He is a a sophomore at Middlebury now. He's absolutely fine. Yeah. But it's important that we come back to this because it really does tie into why this work is so important is a mitigation strategy. So I'm there. And what coaching teaches us is that, that we walk alongside, that we hold the outcome lightly, that we partner with, but are not responsible for. And the oxygen that that brought into the room for me at that particular moment in time really is unquantifiable. And so I really threw myself into um, learning how to coach. And what was so interesting for me in all of this is that I was a SAMHSA certified trauma-informed trainer, which basically just means that I knew the history of trauma. I knew the ways in which trauma shows up. I know the way it impacts and the lens that I carry through which I envision the world or envision interactions is always aware that there can be trauma there. And mm. that awareness leads me to do the things that I can do to try and hold space for it and not amplify it. As I began coaching, that was the space I coached from because that's the, the space that I doctored from. That's the space that I did public health from. That's the it's space. It's just sort that of the I, lens that you look through. Yeah, yeah. It was just a lens for my life, right? Yeah. I often say that trauma informed isn't something I do. It's the way that I am. It's mm-hmm. not a hat that I put on and off. I carry it into my interactions in the grocery store. Okay. One of the things that became clear to me as I began coaching, and I was mostly coaching physicians, was that what was showing up named as burnout was really something more. So yes, all the symptoms were there, but there was something that was deeper than that symptomatology of burnout. And you have to remember, this was now 2015, 2016, ICD had not caught up. There was no official burnout code that we were coding for yet. But we were starting to hear about burnout more and more in the medical literature, burnout in physicians. And what I began noticing that was that what I was seeing wasn't really burnout, number one. And number two, that the term burnout was being weaponized against doctors. It was being used by administration and others in a way that sort of seemed to indicate that they were responsible for their unhappiness, if only if only they had better work-life balance, if only they got their charting caught up, if only they dot, dot, dot. And physicians are incredibly resilient and resourceful humans. And so they're showing up carrying that messaging. There's something wrong with me. I mean, trust me, doctors always think that the problem lies within themselves. It doesn't matter what faces that they put out there. We believe that we are somehow missing something. If only. So we, if only ourselves as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If only ourselves. That is exactly right. And so those messages were weighing heavy. But what I began noticing was that symptomatically, as well as sort of in the way that they would phrase or talk about the the points of pain that they were experiencing, it really, really was, was indistinguishable from primary trauma that you hear or read or, or talk about. And as we moved through that, 
what became really clear was that they needed a place to offload this and examine it and then step into choice, which is always a trauma mitigating strategy, step into choice about what they were going to do with it. And what was so interesting in all of this for me at the time is that you know, physicians are really loath to go to therapists out of the gate. And there are, there are actually legitimate reasons for that. I mean, there's licensure risk, there's reputational risk, there's our tendency to self-diagnose and self-treat, you know, right. I mean, all of these things factor in. But they were much more open and willing to the idea of coaching because theoretically coaching is very forward-looking. It mm-hmm. is um, goal-oriented. It's all of these active things. And yet, when you just sort of hold that space in the middle for whatever bubbled up, whatever strong emotion might bubble up, and then provide opportunity to process it mm-hmm. and to step into choice. So I call it moving R to R from reaction to response, a reaction being something that's that you really don't have a sense of control over. Right. Stepwise process I developed to moving into choice about this was not only empowering, but it was incredibly trauma mitigating. It's like, nobody's ever listened to me say this. I don't have anywhere else I can take this. And to also be able to normalize it a little bit. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm hearing that a lot. Or I've experienced that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my husband, my husband kind of gives me carte blanche to use him in storytelling. My husband's kind of been there lately. It's been really tough. Because your husband's a physician as well. He is. Mm -hmm. He is. So, you know, that opportunity just to normalize, to name it, to normalize Mm -hmm. it to a degree to allow them to then step into, okay, now you see this, what would you like to do with it? It's unbelievably powerful. And while we may think that this is happening regularly for folks, and I still sometimes fall down the rabbit hole of thinking, this is so fundamental. How are people unable, not having these connections? Every time I start to think that I am smacked in the head with a reminder that most people don't have right. that. Most people don't have that. Yeah, we need so it. We need it desperately. So where are we today? Well, mm-hmm. let's talk about this, right? So trauma, th- there's this spectrum from, from stress or eustress to trauma, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a one and done kind of thing. Stress is good for us. High stress can be good for us. Toxic stress even can be good for us if... There are periods of recovery and we have the right supports in in place. So we'll come back to what are the right supports. Right. Unmitigated toxic stress though, that starts to show up as embodied trauma. So people oftentimes think about trauma as being an event, which it can be, right? I mean, we can think of traumatic events that happen, but trauma is also an environment And so what has happened over the last year is that the, in particular, and it it predates the last Mm -hmm. year, but now everybody's willing to talk about it, is that we have been living in and through unrelenting toxic stress with some pretty acute spikes in it as well. Some pretty acute events that have come up that have sort of compounded it. Mm-hmm. But we've had the pandemic. We've had acute racism piled on chronic racism. We have the the distance learning and moms in particular who are trying to navigate teaching and distance work and just the disconnection. And therein lies the biggest issue because what is the biggest mitigator? What is that support? When I said with the proper right. supports, we are the proper supports. Right. You and I, human connection, listen, protect, connect. That's called psychological first aid. We've been completely, that's been rendered. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are left very disconnected, alone, and sort of trying to move through this. And no matter how and I'm putting air quotes so that, you know, everybody can hear that no matter how high functioning you are, there is a toll. There is a toll to this year and it is showing up in literally everyone. So if you were to ask me, what's the penetrance of trauma in the human population, I would say hundred percent. Wow. 
Yeah. In our pre-interview, you had said we all have some trauma. This is not, you know, when I was a therapist, I would do critical incident debriefings. I would go into organizations following a traumatic event and work with the staff and the leadership. Even then, what was happening, what I would see is how triggered every individual was because that trauma triggered into something that they were already experiencing. It was unique to each one of them because we all carry trauma. We all, as a matter of fact, listeners, when I was talking with Kimia in our pre-interview, I was sharing with her my transition from therapy to coaching. And she said to me, (laughs) you were traumatized at a point and and um as 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 you describe your therapy at the end i sense some trauma there so yeah. some of that vicarious secondary trauma because yeah. what you just named something that's so important which is that trauma primes us for future trauma mm-hmm. so once that limbic system mm-hmm. has fought the bear in the woods it is primed to fight the bear again the question becomes, is what we're fighting still a bear or is it a chipmunk? <laughs> and so, you know, we talk about big T traumas, which are, are the thing you were just naming, you know, this big event that happened is there, whatever it is, we right. don't even need to name them. We know what big T traumas look like, mm-hmm. whether they're personal or professional or institutional. What we fail to appreciate is the avalanche of small T traumas. Each one of us experience very personally day after day after day and how those back up on us if we don't have a way to mitigate them and how those small, that avalanche sort of of small T trauma can end up burying us alive if we don't recognize what it is, name it for what it is, step into choice around it and allow some healing, some sunlight to disinfect and heal that space. Trauma happens. It happens to everyone. The question becomes, once we've named it, how are we going to allow it to shape us? And so the beauty of this work is that it allows us, I've got my left hand hung out here to the side. It allows us to move from this space of unknown, unseen, unnamed, unmitigated, unmetabolized trauma into a space where that kind of comes out, comes out of us. And the naming of it or the recognition of it allows for some, some, you know, metabolizing of it and the forward movement towards um, salutogenesis, towards healing centered engagement, towards a place where those wounds become sources of sacred wisdom. My wounded places are what I dig into for wisdom with my children, with my husband, with my friends, with my clients. I wouldn't trade my wounds for anything, but I only get to do that if I if I am willing to let them heal and step into choice around what how I carry them forward. And so that is a very appealing piece of the work because people come into coaching because they want to move. They feel stuck or they feel whatever. Mm -hmm. They have goals that they want to get towards. And so the appeal of this is that not only can you move beyond, but they become infinitely useful to you. So important. Now, we know that um, undoubtedly there's some people listening who are saying, Now, is she talking about therapy or is she talking about (laughs) coaching? So how would you respond to that? It's such a brilliantly, critically important question. I am talking about coaching. And so here are several things about it. Number one, therapy, much like doctoring we talked about earlier, is about diagnosis and treatment plan. I do not diagnose. I provide no treatment plan. It is about the client going where the client needs and wants to go. So that is a significant difference. I would submit, however, that there's always been some overlap in the Venn diagram between therapy and coaching. Now, my coaching clients, and it's actually all over my website too, all know from our very first conversation, 
Coaching is not therapy, but coaching can be very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And I will hold all the space that you need me to hold for strong emotion. And our initial agreement includes, and if at some point in time, it begins to bubble up that maybe you would benefit, there would be some benefit to therapy in addition to coaching, we will have that conversation. So what are the, what are the things that signal that recycling of pain? You know, if it's coming Mm -hmm. up over and over and over again, that's moving from a place where there's forward momentum and coaching ideas to a place where someone needs to be, you know, needs some opportunity to really go back and dig with a skilled therapist. That ain't me, (laughs) you know, symptoms of significant depression, Mm -hmm. not talking about feeling blue or sad. But, but there are symptoms of depression that can show up. And, you know, and when I train coaches in this methodology, we spend an entire, you know, module talking about these things. What are the signs? What are the signals? And how do you address that? Right. I would say that probably 20-ish, 20, 25% of my clients transitioned very successfully to the both end of this. Mm. Some of them come in doing therapy already. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them come in very, very resistant to therapy out of the gate and transition into it as trust is built in the process. So it is really important to be, number one, very skilled in knowing that you can hold space for a strong emotion and not get swamped by it yourself, right? Right. Um, to be able to self-differentiate, to be able to remain grounded, to know where your own pain points are and so forth and so on. So this is for mature coaches. Yes, absolutely. 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 This is not something to step over and avoid. This is not something to um, feel like you have to solve for. And it is not something that you necessarily need to have every detail about. What's the importance of us understanding that the cause, the reasons, the every detail about trauma, do we need to go there? Absolutely not. So this is a really, again, an important distinction, um, I would say, between therapy and um, and trauma awareness. Mm-hmm. I do not need to know where your pain points are in order to know they exist and to be gentle in my approach. I don't have to know. Mm -hmm. So I have clients that I have worked with who give me some portion of the story that they want to share and want to work through as a part of how they're going to do things differently going forward. Mm -hmm. And I have clients who benefit from a place where they can get really angry because something has come up or gone on and need to sort of vent their spleen. And I never know what it is that is behind that, but they feel better and they make that, those forward steps again. I'll be very honest in saying that most people actually do, once they feel safe with you, end up telling you things that, that they, they end up sort of revealing the sources of their pain. That psychological safety is really important. But Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I teach this sort of at an institutional level, Mm -hmm. the trauma-informed approach does not require that I know where anyone's trauma is. It simply requires that I, I call it universal trauma precautions. 360 degrees wrapped around me in every encounter I have, whether I'm talking to my boss or I'm talking to a colleague, I'm talking to a subordinate, I'm working with a client, I'm working with a medical student or resident, it does not matter. I do not need to know where the pain exists or, or what caused it. I just need to know it's there. It could be lots of small T trauma. It could be some big, big T trauma. As long as I am aware and sort of apply those universal trauma precautions, then I'm not going to do harm. Right. When you said something so important that you don't go in with a shovel, digging it all up, when the client feels ready, if they choose to do that, they will share. It is not your job or appropriate to go on a, you know, excavation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to pick at the wound. I don't need to, you know, 
cut something open and 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 dig it out. <laughs> and and my favorite thing is that you know as clients get to know you, there's there's like a, almost a three month mark that I could probably put my finger on where we worked and we worked and we worked and at about the three month mark at like the last five minutes of a session, they'll drop a bomb on their way out the door. <laughs> And I've learned I can almost set my watch by it. And it's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine because it's client-led. Right. And as long as there is this psychological safety and groundedness and they know where to go and how to maneuver from there, then it's absolutely appropriate. I just fundamentally disagree with this idea that coaches, um, that strong emotion that comes up in coaching sessions should be relegated. I think it's harmful, actually. I agree. Well, and I think it sort of gives a message that if you're having strong emotion, that's somehow a diagnosable thing versus a part of being a human, a part of experiencing life with all of the, the different tools that we experience life with. So I want to be sure as we're going over this incredible information, you said, I want to come back to, I said, what strife for you going Mm. with your son. And you said, I want to visit back on that. And I want to know if this is a good time to touch back on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great time. It's, it's sort of a, it's an N of one, but here's a case study for you. So, you know, Joseph, um, just had really long hair when he was diagnosed. And, you know, like I said, he goes from being this 13 year old who spends his life outdoors, like wilderness outdoors. I don't mean just outside on a, you know, baseball field. I mean, like deep into the boundary waters, canoe wilderness, you know, dog sledding across Greenland with the Inuit. I mean, wow. Wilderness adventure kind of thing. And he's told that's all done. You cannot do this for the next, you know, in his head, it was three years. And so psychologically, that was hard. And then, of course, we are instantly pumping him through of full of chemotherapeutic agents. We've done a lumbar puncture. We've done a bone marrow biopsy. You know, we're giving him massive doses of steroids. And he is bewildered for and just received this life-threatening diagnosis And, you know, can see because he's in the ICU, sort of the rush and the it's all very intense. And he's puking, literally barfing into a barf bucket with his hair falling in his and crying. And I'm like, I'm watching this slowly unfold. And I remember this moment of clarity where I was like, you have to mitigate it now. You have to step into this now. And I climbed into bed with him and I, you know, I took his face in my hands. I said, look at my eyes. Cause that's what I always did with my kids. Usually with my kids, it was look at my face. <laughs> Do I look this like a I'm little different? Yeah. <laughs> this one was a little different. It was a little gentler. Look at my eyes. This is not your life. I need you to hear me say, this is just this moment. Because, you know, what occurred to me is he heard three years and he's thinking he's going to feel like this because 13-year-olds can't differentiate, right? He's thinking this is how it's going to feel for the next three years. years. Which at 13 feels like a lifetime. Right. Yeah. And and he's not a panicky child at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching the panic, right, right, because of that. So he's super, super activated. Anyway, I got him to control his breathing. You know, all of those great trips. tips and tools that we utilize to kind of ground people. And as he's calming down, I'm telling him, this is just this moment. I promise you, this is not your life. And so we move through this and then we start injecting humor as time goes on, as the day goes on. By the end of the day, this very first day, they, the (laughs) ICU nurse came and closed the door. She's like, y'all are too loud in here. (laughs) Cause we were laughing so hard. Now, God love him. My husband did not find any of this funny, but my son and I both have a really dark, twisty sense of humor. So the cancer jokes are just pouring forth. We continued, he and I, and and I will forever be grateful for my training in this that I had prior to. That was the philosophy of moving him through that year was things will be hard and you step into choices around this and you have to name things. So 
for example, you know, there can be a little bit of a tendency to get self-pitying. So one of our rules was if you want to have a self-pity day, you have to name it, declare it, and then we will take it. Well, it's pretty hard to look your mom in the eye and say, I'm going to take a day for self-pity. Right. 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 And the other piece of it was he found his purpose really, really early on. Make a wish came to him and said, you know, you get a wish, which really caught him off guard. And, you know, and and they're so sweet. You, you know, we give ponies, we give swimming pools, we give, you know, we help rebuild a muscle car. And I'm like, oh, please stop. Stop. <laughs> no, no ponies. Yeah. He was very sweet. And he says, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. We were driving home that day. He's like, oh, mom. I know what I want. I'm like, oh boy, here comes the pony. Here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> he said, I want to stop the copper mine that they're planning to build, the sulfide or copper mine they're planning to build in the watershed of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Wow. And I went, okay, <laughs> that's a great idea, buddy. You're right. Like, yeah. He says, because who's going to say no to a kid with cancer, right? I'm like, well. <laughs> As it turns out, a lot of people. <laughs> and what it became for him was uh, was the work of the time. Oh, that God. became his mission, it, which he still carries forward with today. But, you know, it was letters to D.C. It was trips to D.C. It was the creation of his own nonprofit around this. It was taking other kids and training them how to do advocacy work and fundraise and do all of these things. The work became the focus. Right. He his he channeled his pain into purpose. And again, I, I think it's, I wouldn't use this with him, but it's that wounds to wisdom. Right. And so a few years ago, before he went to college, he was helping me set up for a, a multi-day trauma training that I, I led. And he's like, can I, do you care if I sit in? I was like, be my guest. I think that'd be great. Everybody should know this. When it was done and we were breaking down, he said to me, he says, well, what's my he was talking about ACEs scores, adverse childhood mm-hmm. events. What's my ACEs score? I said, well, you know what? Why don't you tell me? He said, well, I know you talked about life-threatening illness. And he said, but I don't feel like I have anything. He said, I don't, I don't have any like bad memories of that time. It wasn't easy, but I, I don't view it as a horrible thing. I said, let me ask you something. Cause he's a couple years past. I said, would you trade it? And he sat back and he was like, no. I don't think I would. Wow. So there's, you know, again, end of one, but it is the way that we can hold space for all the pain people are having, mitigate it by, you know, not shutting it down, by listening to it, by allowing it to be painful, by reframing it when appropriate or allowing them adults. It's easier to reframe for your kid. I want to acknowledge that adults allowing them space to begin reframing it, to normalize it for physicians who think that they are the only one who is dot, 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 mm-hmm. normalizing it, nurses too, and then stepping into choice. How, what would you like to do? What would look different? What do you have control over? Huge trauma mitigator, right? Because all trauma, 100% of trauma involves a real or perceived loss of control. When we allow clients to step into some choice, that's a a restoration of agency, incredibly trauma mitigating, that connection and that forward momentum into choice. So good. Oh, I could literally talk to you and talk to you and talk to you, although I know you have a life that's outside of Meg. So let's talk a little bit about how people can learn more about the kind of work that you do. I love that. I love that. So the, the, the upside to the year that we have been through with regards to trauma-informed coaching and trauma-informed coaching practices is that there is growing recognition in the governing bodies, the ICF, the IOC, and others, that, this, that there is room in the Venn diagram. That, that there is and has always been overlap. And that frankly, there's, if I'm really, really honest about it, it's not something magic that I do. It's just something intentional that I do. Well, and, and do so well. Well, and thank you. I, I, I think so. It's because I really am passionate about this. If we believe that there's 100% penetrance of trauma in the human population right now, 
then I can promise you there are not enough people to deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, try finding a therapist right now. Exactly. And, And there's, and there is a huge and growing need for, for therapists. I want to acknowledge that and honor that. And it's an important profession. It is incredibly, please, if you are thinking about what to pursue, go be a therapist. I mean, it is crucial. And there is so much space for us as coaches to mitigate trauma in our clients and help them to move through these times. Um, It's showing up in CEOs and in the C-suite. It's showing up in administrators. It's showing up in directors. It's, it is showing up everywhere. This has been a toxic an unrelenting toxic year. And one of the things that really is helpful is to decouple the words trauma and victim. They are not synonymous. Trauma is something that happens to us. Victim is a role. So important. And I can imagine important for people in powerful positions, but just people in general to, to realize that they can work with a trauma mitigating coach. And that doesn't mean that they are a victim. So that distinction might give them permission to walk into a space that they might otherwise avoid. And to improve their own. So, you know, the, the key to trauma mitigation techniques is not just to do it for, but also to be very transparent in what the process is, because the beauty is when what the coach E has learned in your session is something they carry into their life. And suddenly they're like, you know, that thing you taught me about R to R, I just did that with my boss or with my colleague or with, and it was amazing how differently this this volatile conversation went when I took a deep breath and dropped my fists and realized that what I was seeing was someone who was also harmed. Wow. And I got curious about them and curious about why they were saying things. And so I, you know, part of, of being trauma informed is being very, very transparent. I am very transparent in how I do this. It's not meant to be opaque uh, or mysterious. The, you're not the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I want everyone to develop these skills because they're not, there's, there's really nothing magic about it. Drop your fists. Take a deep breath. Ground yourself. Get curious about the person you are encountering and how they make sense of their lives and recognize that your lived experience and their lived experience can both be true. So how do you tell us a little bit about your program? So I and Dr. Ann Deaton and Antoinette Iyer. guest a couple times on the show. So you all might be very familiar with Dr. Ann Deaton. Yes, she is a, and an, she and Antoinette um, are just incredible coaching teammates And we have partnered together to create this course because I always know when I'm out of my league. And so training coaching isn't something that I had experience in and I wasn't going to um, fly by the seat of my pants with it. So I brought in two women who do know how to train coaches and have been doing it for decades. And we built a trauma mitigation masterclass specifically for seasoned coaches. So we really um, do encourage it for folks who have been coaching for a period of time, who um, are very, very comfortable with and and secure in their own coaching skills. Most of our coaches have some extended degrees and experience in other fields. They're Mm -hmm. therapists or they're uh, they're physicians or they're psychologists or, you know, Mm -hmm. so, and it's a six module course that weaves together the basics of trauma and the multivariate ways that it shows up and some history and some context for it with fundamental ICF coaching skills, right? So it allows people to see that you already know how to do this. Here's a different lens that you can utilize. Mm -hmm. And here's a little bit of a broadening sort of, uh, and, and practice of some subspecialty things that you might begin incorporating. And we allow for a lot of practice. It is an experiential learning. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really, really important for me to keep reminding myself because there's such, we live in such a culture of more and faster, you know, faster and bigger, mm-hmm. um, scaling it. God, please, everybody has to stop using the word scaling with me. Can you scale <laughs> this and, you know, turn it into something that we can, you know, a video series or something? I struggled with that for a really long time because I I do have a sense of urgency around teaching this. I think the most dangerous time for our physicians, and I have a really heavy heart around this right now, the most dangerous time for our healthcare workers, physicians in particular, who already have a suicide rate completion, suicide completion rate that is twice the general population. A physician in this country is committing suicide every single day. And I have been um, recently profoundly impacted by the loss of um, someone within my circle. I'm so sorry. Thank you. The most dangerous time is coming. It isn't, you know, in the acuity of the crisis that we see um, people start unraveling. It is after I I liken it to um, soldiers on the battlefield, right? They don't commit suicide on the battlefield. They commit suicide when they come home and they feel there are no scaffolded supports in place for them. Um, And again, naming the fact that coaching is not therapy. However, coaching can be very, very, very therapeutic and it helps people to create context and normalcy and, And there is simply something about vomiting your pain in front of another human and stepping into choice about leaving it there and, and, and having that person not go, Oh my God, just lean in and say, wow, that is so much. I'm so glad you told me. Thank you. There's something incredibly healing just about that. And we do not have nearly, not nearly enough therapists, even if physicians all suddenly decided they were going to go to therapy, there aren't enough. Mm -hmm. There just aren't enough. We need to begin creating and normalizing, normalizing and creating community for those who have been so harmed over this last year. So they have places to go. So there's some urgency to it and coming full circle to this idea of, um, of scalability. I don't think you can, I can't figure out how to scale this training. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I want to, because the power of it is in experiencing it. And that is slower, closer work. Right. Wow. That is, that is slower, closer work. That is co-creation of the trauma informed environment that is holding that environment for coaches who Mm -hmm. guess what have trauma have harm mm-hmm. holding that allowing healing to bubble up within the coach training as we move through it is deep experiential learning and there is no shortcut i can come up with for that so if you want to know more about the program we will have links for that uh in the show notes for this episode i am so grateful for what you brought forward and what you sharing your your stories, your experience, and the the knowledge that you have of the importance of this work. Anything in particular that we've left on the table that really needs to be looked at? I know you also wanted to touch back on the right supports. I think you did that, but you might want to add. I didn't. I, I made a note that that was the other thing that you had noted that you wanted to touch back on. Yeah. So the best thing. Uh, for a human in crisis is another human. I mean, that's just a, a truth. The very, very best thing for a for the hu- for a human who is in pain is another human. The very worst thing for a human in pain can also be another human. <laughs> it all depends on how we show up for each other. And so, in this time when most of us are walking around um, harmed and activated. The, the key is to remember that most of us are walking around harmed and activated. I'm primed. You're primed. Um, all of us are, are dealing with this on one level or another. And most of it is an unconscious operating system. And so that remembering, that daily practice of 
wow, I feel my heart rate go up. Oh, I feel like I need to, you know, gear up for a fight with this other person is that there is such a gift that we give ourselves and we give everyone around us when we remember to drop our hands and get curious. That's not necessarily, I mean, it's also a coaching tool, but, but it's really just a tool for being human in times such as these. Every single one of us has the power to amplify or mitigate the harm that is being done. And we have to choose. We get to choose. Mm -hmm. But if we don't choose to mitigate, the odds are we are going to amplify by default. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and, and really raising all of our awareness on such an important topic. I am so grateful to have gotten to be here with you, Coach Meg. This was really fun. It was awesome to spend time with you, truly. I certainly hope that you're walking away from that. Maybe a little breathless, a little, if you've heard the interview before, I've heard the interview before, yet I listened to the whole thing again before prepping for this relaunch. And I got to tell you, it still took my breath away. If you want to know more about Dr. K and the work that she's doing, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and reach out, learn more about her. She's doing incredible work in the world. My conversation with her continues in the Star Coach community. Part of having people to help you work through those small T traumas is being in community and having those who understand the frustrations of building a business, the stress sometimes that comes from doubting your confidence or wondering if you're bringing the right thing forward in the partnership. All those are things that we talk about, work on, and strengthen in the Star Coach community. So if you'd like to know more about what's offered in the community, go to starcoachshow.com slash community, starcoachshow.com slash community. Now next week, I am also bringing a past guest on, but new interview with the amazing Tanya Smith. We're going to be talking about video, video content, this, she is the expert in this. And we're going to be talking about how do you really build your business through having video content as one of the things that you're offering to the world. Don't let that scare you away. She is amazing. And you're really going to want to join us for that episode. So until next week, this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.